This month's 3x3, three three. it's uh, Putting Kids to Bed, Bedtime 3x3. Three three. My name is Tom Chick, and I'm here with Christian Romoski. Babinski, 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 but you can just call me Mr. B. You better not have taken one of my 3x3 three three picks. And with a bedtime tagline, Kelly Wand. I'm just a mom standing in front of a clock asking it to be my kid's bedtime. <laughs> That was good, Kelly Wand. I didn't expect It's a movie related. I didn't expect so much thought to be put into it. Kelly Wand, are there two taglines for the bedtime three by three or just one? Putting a two year old to bed who isn't tired is like putting your drunk friend to bed. They're singing to themselves, requesting water, incoherent babble, crying, some weird yoga poses, hiccups, and then they pass out. Who said that? Is that you or is that a no, famous quote? I stole that, but I forget. Someone some it's probably also, Weinstein. I, I think it's. I think that was Churchill. <laughs> yeah, not a peaser. Oh no, that was the other guy. Yeah, yeah. You're thinking of Neville Chamberlain. Neville don't, Chamberlain. Don't confuse the two of them. This is the worst time to confuse the two of them, Kelly Wand. Come on. Is get, it? Get, get straight with your politics. Do I have to pay attention again? Kelly Wand, is there a third bedtime tagline? Yeah, but it's lame. Let's just skip it. Okay, let's skip the lame me. one. Kelly Wand, I have an important hard. question for you. But mm. first, I'm going to ask Dingus this important question. <laughs> the Segway Master. <laughs> before we do our 3x3 three three of bedtimes, uh, what's a movie you've seen recently? Um, I saw a movie called Burning. Mm. Have you seen this movie? <laughs> yeah. Me or Kelly Wand? So it was on uh, – Yeah, I, like it was one of those things that I saw I, – I guess we didn't – talk about it on the podcast i thought we did but it's you one of those did, things is one of your movies yeah yeah so dingus is just i guess bringing up the rear on some of these uh yeah. but uh yeah it, it would have been on my top 10 if i'd seen it in time you know what's funny like gretchen grasshoff recommended it i thought and then when i told her i'd seen it she went i don't like it i don't know why people like that movie what yeah she doesn't like it she thinks it's stupid uh why would you have had it on your top 10 tom um, well, if you go back, we I, I know I talked about it in one of these things uh, where we talk about the movies we've seen, uh, and I, I just it, – it reminded me a lot of the Faulkner that I think it traces back to. Uh, mm-hmm. I loved how it was transplanted from a Japanese to a Korean setting. Uh, I love all of the actors in it. The, the woman took me a little bit of time to win me over, but by the time the, it was oh. over um, – that's why you don't know what kind of movie it is. That's one of its exactly. Strengths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Glenn's good in it. Glenn's amazing. In it. Like I'd always, I, I just so written the poor guy off because of uh, he'd done a walking douchebags. Well, Walking Dead, like he, you know, he, he did what he could with that, but he he tried to they, they tried to put him front and center of this like uh, office violence movie called Mayhem, which he didn't work in that. It was um, his abduction. What do you mean his abduction? When Taylor Lautner, after Twilight, called oh. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's plug him into Gerard movies. How could I have not gotten a Twilight reference? Sure. Um, well, but no, I, I, I loved him in this, uh, and I especially loved the kid, and I think one of the things we might have talked about is how he is 
he has that James Freshville quality that we talked about in Animal Kingdom, where he's just not yeah. really present. He's not really yeah. he's, he's a dupe most of the movie, uh, and it's a difficult protagonist. It's a difficult protagonist mm. to create. And I just think that the writer, the director, and that kid just did a great job uh, creating this fella. Um, so at any rate, that's why it's, it would have been in my top ten. Dingus, what did you think of Burning, and why did you finally get around to watching it? Um, well, it's been on my list of things to see for some time. Um, and I just decided to watch it this week um, because I've got a lot of those types of movies that you guys have recommended over the last year or so and that I'm finally getting around to. Um, is Glenn Stephen Ewan? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. That's what, okay. That's why I recognized him. I've seen Walking Dead, so I don't know. Um, I, I, guess me, he, he, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but he hides under a dumpster. <laughs> In burning, yeah, really claim to fame. Uh, So sorry, go ahead, Dingus. Yeah, so Stephen Ewan, you'd seen him before. Classic Glenn. There's a moment after they get what she's been craving, which is like tripe uh, stew, uh, where they go out to their cars, and Ben has this really this nice car, and um, he gets the luggage because he's picked them up at the airport. And it looks like he's taking it out of a dumpster, but he's really taking it out of the back of this <laughs> sad old pickup truck. It's callback. I'm like, why is the luggage in a dumpster? Uh, for me, um, burning uh, really called to mind Twin Peaks. Um, yeah. There's that stately. There's this. There's a couple of moments that, especially when she does the topless dance, that reminded me of something both music. Yeah. And just tonally, and a lot of the dialogue and the pacing of the movie reminds me of some of that languid, languid but, abandoned, but creepy feel that Twin Peaks would have. The sense of foreboding that was constantly there, but you're not quite sure why. And it kind of doles out uh, its information very carefully. And um, I don't remember you saying the James Freshville thing, but I definitely thought that about uh, Yang Su, um, that he just constantly is sitting there with his mouth open, looking sort of like, I, I'm just not quite present. Um, and the rev, the reveal he has about, how do you say her name? Is it Haimi? 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 Um, the reveal he has about her and just about his family and just the way he lives his life. Uh, I love the way that the movie is paced. It doesn't feel like two and a half hours to me. Um, I really just grooved on the, the way that it unfolded and where it goes. Uh, and I, you know, again, I don't want to talk too much about it because it only came out last year and I think it's really worth seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I quite liked it as well. So Kelly Wand, we've all seen burning. Uh, I loved it. I loved it. I saw it on a plane, which was kind of funny. So it was like during the topless dance, I was in the, I was sitting in the middle. So there was like an old lady sitting to my right. As long as there were no children nearby, that's okay. Well, I lit up a cigarette to discourage it from watching. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was called Burning. But yeah, I love movies where I don't know what the fuck the movie's about. And the longer that lasts, the more interested I become because I'm so spoiled by American shit. It's just... Everything's the same, the pacing, save the cat, 30 minutes in, inside it. And so burning, I was like, why is this in the movie? 
who is this guy? Is it's a is she like you don't know who's who's what and what's going on or why you're watching it or why it's called burning. So there's a lot of reasons to keep going. I thought. Yeah. And yeah. I think it, it, that's just it's like Korean cinema is just so yeah. alive and vibrant these yeah. days. I mean, it's just amazing what's coming out of South Korea. So. Uh, and there, and so we get a look at. I love that's the thing. It's like Grudge or any movie where we're seeing some other culture's version of, of the story. Right. Like, uh, well, then, and we then, see their class system. Well, like, that's one the of the way, things I talked he works about. Works on a farm. Yeah. And th- this this distilled from Southern Gothic to uh, Haruki Murakami to this this Korean director. I mean, this went through three. Uh, like a reverse Handmaiden. Oh, now I exactly. remember yeah. talking about that. Yeah, okay. there's a Faulkner short story where they were barns instead of greenhouses, and then Murakami wrote, uh, adapted barn burning into, uh, I don't know if it's a short story or a novel, probably a short story, uh, and then the fellow who did burning adapted this script from the Murakami. Uh, so, it, it, yeah, it's that, it, it's kind of like, I don't want to say like putting something in Babelfish because that sort of just leads to confusion and gibberish. Uh, it, it's like seeing through the through different cultural lenses the same concept in this story. Uh, yeah, a timeless human nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of my favorite moments, just that I didn't really understand because I was because I don't know the geography of South Korea, um, and there's a moment where he gets up in the middle of the night after he moves to the farm or to his father's house uh, and he hears this loudspeaker and I didn't know what that was Yeah. Um, until later he explains what it is that it's North Korean propaganda being broadcast um, and I just found that to be a fascinating little touch that that's constantly just under under your skin uh, being broadcast like that, and I wondered if there was some sort of corollary. Well, the- I, I mean, it, it's uh, like Seoul is obviously close to the border, but it's a drive to the the DMZ. It's not like Seoul, It's not like East. It's not like Berlin split in half or anything. Um, but if you go to the the countryside north of Seoul, I'm sure that there are places where the North Koreans are just being assholes and just broadcasting loudspeakers. But more importantly. Uh, I think what the movie's getting at there is just how that's a part of that national consciousness, and it it gets to the guy's relationship to the girl, is basically you've had half of your country ripped away from you, and you don't really know what happened to it. You don't mm-hmm. know what's going on over there. Like it's, it's, Can you believe it's, what you've been told? But it also, yeah, exactly, and and it's basically like it's been it's been kidnapped. Like it, all these, all these, these people yeah, that happens? used to be half of your country are now sealed off, and and it's yeah, it's exactly, it's like what wh- what happened, and that that's just a fundamental part of South Korean national consciousness and, because of because of their, their their situation that that I love that he built that into it, and that that idea of a loudspeaker constantly playing that is kind of what I imagine it must feel like to be Korean, especially old enough to. Uh, to have appreciated what it was like during the Cold War, and even now, you know, with with uh, the North Koreans throwing missiles around and stuff, like it's constantly hovering over them. Um, so yeah, I liked and how the the noise from the loudspeakers was kind of an analog to that. And Stephen Ewan would represent South Korea like the capitalist right. success, young and exactly un, un, really unaware of the the trauma of the past, or just just not that interested, certainly not that affected yeah. by it. Yeah. 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 Just gets so, rid of the luggage with that. Yeah. 
Is there and because the the Faulkner that he points to is a collected works thing. Right. Um, is there some sort of uh, does Faulkner deal with the South and the North? in our country oh well you can't i mean that's part of certainly the south that's that's certainly part of the the south uh, i mean especially you know when faulkner was writing and still yeah like, he's the lenny bruce of the faulkner or of the uh Clint mccarthy genre lenny i'm having to parse that but he was yeah. definitely writing you know that's part of that's part of just southern culture is right. uh recovering from having your ass kicked because you wanted to keep slaves around i mean uh and and so yeah, there's again this sense too that uh, I mean Faulkner's very keenly. You can't be a Southern writer without being keenly aware of how different and separate you are from the North. Uh, right. I think. The way uh, you talk. Yeah, the way you talk, just language. the culture. Yeah, yeah. My, my favorite author is one of my oh, favorite it, authors is uh, Walker Percy, who is just constantly oh, just fascinating. Yeah. I I finally read Carver lately, and and. I find it when I read short stories, I don't always understand them, so I have to go online to figure them out. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, now it makes me want to rewatch Shortcuts. So like, but like his thing is like, don't rewatch Shortcuts. People. Don't rewatch don't? Shortcuts. No, what? No. <laughs> not, not even the Julian. Shortcuts Burkhart? has has as much in common with Raymond Carver does with Raymond Chandler. I mean, Shortcuts is not <laughs> Raymond Carver. Shortcuts is Hollywood. Shortcuts is is the player more than it's Raymond Carver. Yeah. These stories don't evoke the movie at all. I'll say that. Because they're all they're all kind of period pieces too. They feel like they're happening. In this. Yeah, but uh, yeah, does, I don't want shortcuts. I don't think holds up. Yeah. Does Charles Portis do some of that too? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Like Dog of the South is certainly. He's, uh, he's more jaunty and funny. Yeah, yeah, he's he's he would be more like a Glenn, like the like Glenn's character in Burning, like untraumatized. Uh, uh, yeah, but things like. I guess True Grit, though, gets pretty heavy. But yeah, I mean, all Southern writers. I mean, it's certainly eh. something that makes you a Southern writer, I would say. Her character's so fun, it's almost not heavy. Like, you're just so engaged. and Like, you're not worried for her in a weird way. Although you should be, I in, guess. In what? In True Grit? Yeah. yeah. Did you read Masters of Atlantis? Um, No, I haven't read that or Gringos. Um, I've read Dog of the South. Dog of the South, now I love, yeah. That's, yeah. Why oh, is he's a, a movie great Dog of the South. Yeah. I don't know. They should be. They should all be movies. Masters of the Land would be a great movie. That's one no one likes but me. <laughs> I go to bat for it. But yeah, Carver. Yeah, the burning. I mean, just burning. Yeah. Right. Just burning. Yeah, the burning oh. would sound like it'd be like a horror movie. I think. Which I Our... didn't put it past this movie becoming that. I didn't know what it was going to become. Right. right. Well, you think it's going to be a reference to the barn burnings? I love that there's like 45 minutes of the movie, not 45 minutes, but like maybe 20 minutes, where he's just looking for farms. <laughs> he goes on a farm quest to see if they're burned. That part. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, Kelly Wand, what's something that you've seen lately? Ugh. Mine's not as good as Dingus's, but it's. Oh, uh, I got you beat. I definitely got you beat. All right. Well, I'll, just, I'll race through by to get to the. No, no, no hurry. I just, I'm, I'm sure that you guys, I. You guys can't po- you can't possibly rival the horribleness of what I saw. But go ahead. <laughs> Wait, you go then. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we we love Patrick Bryce in this podcast. We all I think appreciated Creep. We all think that the overnight is uh, a, just a, a, a really stark, weird, uh, disturbing 
comedy about sexual miscues <laughs> that's really that they don't make movies like that. So Patrick Bryce wrote and directed both of those. Uh, finally, Patrick Bryce gets to direct someone else's material uh, with a movie called Corporate Animals. Uh, he uh. didn't write this. And Corporate Animals, I was worried it was going to be an Ed Helms vehicle. Uh, but fortunately, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and spoil some of this because this movie is painfully bad. Uh, fortunately, Ed Helms dies like 15 minutes into it. So it's not an Ed Helms vehicle. It turns out it's a Demi Moore vehicle. And what uh. this movie is, it's The Office, but they go on a company retreat to a, a spelunking and they get caught in a cave-in and they're underground for uh, a couple of weeks and have to resort to cannibalism. Uh, and, and that's the whole pitch. But they, the, the comedy, the level of comedy and how funny they think they're being, strictly, it's, Demi Moore is uh, the, the Steve Carell of this. And if you've I seen her in anything recently, you can imagine how that went and it's exactly like you're imagining. It's, it's cringe-worthy. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, she's dumb? She's, she's horrible. She's horrible at no. She she's supposed to be the I mean. she's the domineering boss who's oblivious. Oh, uh, disclosure, Demi Moore. But but I mean Demi Moore. Oblivious. I All mean, right, I gotta watch this because you and I always agree on what's funny. <laughs> so well, no, she I looks great. I mean, she looks verify. great, and she's certainly confident trying this. But it's just she's terribly miscast. Uh, yeah. And the the. The supporting cast is all – they're all comics you've seen before. Uh, you'll recognize a lot of faces if not know the names. Um, but the, the problem is the, the script is terrible. The, let me yeah. tell you the only – there's one funny line. I'm going to give away the one funny line in this movie that will give you a sense. Every other line is nowhere near this good. So they're talking about resorting to cannibalism. Ed Helms is killed early in the movie. They're like, hey, we should eat him. You know, we have to live. Uh, and then someone says, well, isn't it more ethical if we just eat, like, our own limbs? Yeah. And then someone says, well, wait, you, you mean, like, cut off our arm like James Franco in that movie? And here, here's the joke. This is all good. I don't know what you're talking about now. Here, here's Go what on. somebody says. And this is yeah. a guy – I love this actor. You, you've seen him on Veep. Uh, he's a big, brash uh, – oh, you guys didn't see Sword of Trust. Um, anyway, uh, th- this guy says, I'm not going to eat my own arm. That's where I keep my Busy watch. Oh, that's good. So that's. I missed uh, it. Sorry. Sorry, say it again. Tell I ruined it. Uh, he says, I'm not going to eat my own arm. That's where I keep my watch. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, and, and that right there, here's, a, here's another, here's a better example of what this movie thinks is funny. Uh, one of the guys is trapped down there. He's got a wound on his leg, and they're worried about it turning gangrenous, gangrenous, whatever, uh, infected, getting infected, um, which it does, and he starts to hear the voice of Britney Spears in his head talking to him. What? Yeah. Saying what? Oh, things like, oh, like he, he gets delirious. I forget exactly what she tells him. Just telling him, hey, how are you doing? Just like talking to him, hanging out with him. Um, and and uh, the, the, it's her. a setup. It's a setup for this. There's a point later in the movie where he's so delirious that he imagines his gangrenous wound singing toxic to him. Like the, the wound is this. the wound is moving like lips. Right. Mm-hmm. This is uh, one of those movies where you're ter- you're talking me into seeing it and you're trying to do the opposite. Uh, no, have fun. Yeah, great. I, I want you to see it. Uh, Sounds like Swiss Army, man. It wishes. It wishes. There, there is. Ooh, there's a whole animated sequence like where somebody has an illusion. Like the, he goes delirious, and he, he's imagining that he's escaping, and it's, it's like an animated sequence, which 
uh, you got to be a good movie like Booksmart to pull something like that off, and this is not that. <laughs> See, you're a snob. You can't. There probably were good jokes. Like you already hate the movie. I'm not okay, here's here's the level of joke. Here's the typical yeah. joke in the movie because it's totally crass. It's trying to be super R-rated and earn its R rating. Right. Uh, here, so it turns Toxic. out that that Demi Moore has been uh, uh, sleeping with the intern, and the intern, you know, when they all go to sleep the one of the first nights that they're trapped she comes over to the intern and she's like hey have sex with me and he's like no we can't we can't do that we we have to stop this this is inappropriate and she's like oh come on and uh she says come on we've already we've already uh we've already done it before let's do it again he's like well we haven't done everything we should just stop it at this point and she says oh we haven't done everything i've never given you a rim job while you're eating me out oh good lord that's uh-huh. so generic. That's oh, that's so, so funny. generic. Did and the response, sh- of course, is that even physically possible? He says, "That's uh, oh, that's yeah, hilarious. Yeah, it's that's hot, bad. hot, raunchy sexual comedy. Oh, for fun's sake!" It should have been a really weird line, like, "You haven't eaten me out while I've with while the raccoon's been inside." Like, it should have been like a Helena Bonham Carter Fight Club line. I mean, if, like if you're going to push it to just, 11, push it to 11. But yeah, this just, just sort of... Just throwing two things in there and saying... Yeah, ah, it hovered it around a gross seven. I'm eating me out. Yeah, so... And the thing That's is... That's like... Yeah, it's, okay. it's Patrick Bryce. Like, Patrick Bryce, I think... I, I just think he got just saddled with this just horrible, horrible material and didn't know what to do with it. The funny... It's all one set, pretty much. It's just all set in a cave. Um... Nobody's really notable. They're all sort of caricatures. The 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 nebbish intern. Uh, there's like a hot lesbian couple that nobody knew was was lesbians. Uh, uh. Demi Moore, who's like the cougar. Uh, there's the fat guy who ends up like running around without his shirt on because oh that's so funny fat guys without shirts. So it's really wacky like 80s R-rated. It, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Ball. Yeah. It's just not. But well, that your la- like the last example is a pretty. That's rough. <laughs> and they uh, definitely get rid of the is physically possible. That's got to go first. Yeah. So uh, she... there you go. Yeah. All right. That's, is that's there a lot Patrick... of nudity? No, no nudity except the, the uh, fat guy whose name is like Dan Borowski or – shoot, I can't he, – he plays the, a really uh, crass senator on Veep. Um, Be more he's... specific. Oh, I know who you're talking Oh, the guy who has the intern – Yes, yes, exactly, that guy, yeah. The one who keeps grabbing Patton Oswalt? Yep, yep, yeah, that guy. No. Well, Patton Oswalt Wait, keeps grabbing that's... Jonah. I think Patton <laughs> yeah. Oswalt is, yes, is, is, right. is his sidekick or something, Sorry. yeah. So. That's uh, the sidekick's comedy. He's the one who's doing the good part. And I was going to tell you guys – I was yeah. going to tell you guys how awful the Between Two Ferns movie is, but – I don't need to tell you that because I can just tell you that it's directed and written by Scott Aukerman. So I'll leave you with that. Uh, and also, real quick public service announcement. Uh, Jim Mickle, who uh, we, we saw Colt in July, which is the last movie he did. He did a kind of a cool zombie movie called Mulberry Street a long time ago. Uh, a vampire apocalypse movie called Stakeland that's kind of okay. Um, Jim Mickle's latest movie is a really big budget uh, uh thriller sci-fi crime thing with Boyd Holbrook in the lead and it's called uh, In the Shadow of the Moon which is super generic and makes you think it's going to be about werewolves which is not Um, 
but it's a, it's a big-budget thriller set in Philadelphia. It starts out with a lot of crowd scenes, a lot of shooting on busy streets. Um, I mean, it, they had a budget for this. Uh, and it, it does a weird thing, though, where it's supposed to take place over the course of, like, 40 years. So they have to do awful stuff with, like, aging makeup where it starts to sort of fall apart. And it's about a cop who's tracking a serial killer over those 40 years, trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, and it's just like when they start trying to age Boyd Holbrook, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a youthful looking fella, and they try to age him by just giving him long stringy hair, which just looks terrible. Uh, <laughs> it's horrible. Uh, but uh, but I kind of liked it. I, I liked the script a lot. The script a lot, and it was cool to see Jim Mickle being given a, a big budget to play with. Uh, he gets uh, Michael C. Hall back, who was in Cold in July. Um, so, uh, uh, in the shadow of the moon, thumbs up, uh, kind of, despite there's some problems. Pardon? Did you say there's zombies in it? No, he did a movie called Mulberry Street. That was his first movie, which was kind right, of like right. a gorilla thing shot in New York uh, about killer rats uh, oh, affecting yeah. people. Uh, Mulberry Street's really cool. I think I think Dingus has seen it. You've seen it, right, Dingus? Isn't that the one with the shadows and the light disappearing? No, that's Vanishing on Something Something Street. That's Brad Anderson. Oh, uh, all right. Yeah. I know I've seen What him. about Arlington Road? That is – shoot, who's Arlington Road? There's a time I would have been able to tell you who, who directed that. It's the guy that did Mothman Prophecies, isn't it? Oh, Chapstick. <laughs> hey, Between Two Ferns would have been good if they just done, like – that lo- that running time, but just done between two ferns episodes with Keanu Reeves. Well, they do a lot of them, and even those I've lost my pay- like I, I, I. No, I like those. I mean, some of them are. I, the thing is, they're so blatantly scripted now that it's just not yeah. as much fun anymore. That's true. A movie out of that. They didn't. <laughs> they oh. didn't answer that question in the movie. Well, they, they they make a movie about Zach Galifianakis being a loser who can't. Uh, do even hold down a cable TV show, and let me tell you, the Will Ferrell in this. I mean, Kelly Wan, you're the you're the defender of that Holmes and Watson movie that he did. I, I am the I'm Will. Defender. Yeah. The Will Ferrell in Between Two Ferns. Oh, I'm. St- it it might be the worst Will Ferrell appearance I've ever seen. No, I liked him. Oh. I liked it when he he's in a limo and he gets out and he rides a scooter over. To him. I like that. I've talked to people who go, he is not funny. He is never funny. But you know who else is good in that? Is uh, Zach Galifianakis' uh, secretary. The glasses. Wait, he's the, the secretary? What are you talking about? No, her P- his PA, the girl. Oh, from Between Two Ferns. Melanie Lipkiss yeah. or whatever her name yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so she's funny. Basically, uh-huh. The premise uh-huh. of the movie is that they explain a joke we didn't need explained. And you Pretty know who actually wrote it at the end? Over the, over the credits, they show um, outtakes of, like, Brie Larson and him. And the, all the outtakes are, like, the guests laughing at his joke and him laughing, too. And you're like, ah, oh, that ruins it. I wanted right. to think it was just a genuine right. hostility on some level. I mean, I, oh. I enjoy watching Brie Larson laugh, but uh, not at not the forced laughter at what Scott Aukerman thinks is funny. And they're breaking character. Right. As opposed to Burt Reynolds and Kevin Allred, but they're totally outtakes. Yeah, 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 I know. But all right, well, Kelly, wanted it's your turn. <laughs> What's something that's probably better than corporate animals, but not as good as Burning? If you didn't see this, I'll just race through it because it's kind of boring if you haven't seen it. But I was thought you might have seen it, and possibly Dingus. But it's a, it was a movie called House at the End of the Street with Jennifer Lawrence. 
Yeah, uh, who's the mom in that? I forgot who the Elizabeth mom Elizabeth Shue. Right, 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 right. And it's made in 2012, and she's in high school, and she's in a band. And there's, like, a troubled kid who lives at the house at the end of the street. Right. His sister, supposedly. And it's like Jane Eyre meets Psycho, because he has, like, a sister and a room that he has to keep locked up. She's crazy and keeps grabbing knives. But she's Jennifer Lawrence is really into him. And, the, and so and so she has her calls forwarded to her cell phone because her mom's like she's always it's like Jaws too where they're always checking up on the kids and they're super overprotective but it turns out they're right and uh, did you did you see it I did but I don't it, it didn't register much for me I don't remember liking it or caring for it that much I, I remember loving the the casting of Elizabeth Shue and Jennifer Lawrence as a mom and daughter but other than that not remembering much there's some Stephen King bullies in it who uh, attack him for no reason in part of the movie and then they trash his car <laughs> who's the him <laughs> stephen king the, yeah the, stephen king. no the troubled kid that she's into okay her who lives at the house at the end of the street yeah okay and his parents died so the bullies pick on him because his parents died that's the theory and so then he he fights back and like breaks one of their feet and they're all oh no he's crazy because he broke someone's foot in a fight and then he runs off then the bullies drive to his house and set it on fire. <laughs> wow, these really guys are yeah. I know, and they have a lot of, and they really get around. Like they drove all the way over. They're like, I know, and then we'll <laughs> set on fire. And then Jennifer Lawrence shows up, and she puts out the fire by taking off her shirt, so she has a tank top on. That's how she puts the fire out. She's some. It doesn't sound like a very determined fire. <laughs> it's very determined, Jennifer Lawrence. And then I don't know. It's dumb, but there's a good twist. But then at the end, I had, I didn't understand. Some a character gets stabbed, but it's fine in the last scene. And then I also didn't understand who the first girl was. So yeah, uh, House the End of the Street. But Jennifer Lawrence in high school, I think that's why I watched it. Like I think it was you one of those movies where she filmed it before Silver Linings, and then they just released it. It was like a Texas Chainsaw with McConaughey. Was it before Winter's Bone? I think it was right after, but they might have shot it before it. Why didn't you and just rewatch like, Winter's Bone? Because I hadn't seen this, and she's in high school, and she's in a band. <laughs> and I th- and I was really bummed. Battle of the Bands like becomes completely like that doesn't even happen. Like fire bully thing ruins Battle of the Bands, so you don't get to see the Battle of the Bands. Her player drum. What does she do in the band? She's the drummer. I think she's the drummer. Yeah. Okay. Huh. But she she composes too. She That's quite Elena. the band. If if you have someone as lovely as Jennifer Lawrence and you decide to put her on the drums, I can only imagine who they have singing. Another guy she goes out with, but he tries to make out with her, so she gets upset and leaves. But she likes the the troubled kid. <laughs> like she starts, she's all the thing. Who that plays gets the troubled like, kid? Uh, I forget his name. He is his, is his name Gil Bellows or something something. No, Gil Bellows is an older fellow. I like him, but uh, he okay. He's in it too as a cop. Yeah. He's yeah, Gil like Bellows a, plays cops most of the time, actually. I think that's his bread and butter, I, I think. I forget who the troubled kid is. But there's a yeah. part where he is, has her sitting on a, on a rock next to him in the forest. And she's really into like, his brooding ways. And there's another girl. The waitress gives him free pie. He's handsome. That's the real thing. But anyway, okay. so they're looking at a tree, and he's all, do you see it? And she's all, now. And he's all. No, come on, look at it. And it, there's just a shot of the tree's bark just staring back at us. And I'm watching the super baked. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's happening right now. 
And then suddenly she goes, oh, my God, I see it. And then he's all – she's all, it's a face. And it shows the tree again. I'm all, what? <laughs> like, are they going to CG the tree to make it look more like a face? Or how baked am I? And then she's all, come on, let's go inside. And then she starts making it out with him. And then, and then the crazy psychotic slasher person gets out of the room by knocking the key. She keeps getting out, so he's really lame. He's really bad at uh, – keeping women captive <laughs> they keep escaping from him for the whole movie but and, uh, and you so you never saw the the face in the tree huh i never saw it and then at the end spoiler alert elizabeth shoe and she are sitting at the tree and she's all do you see it mom and elizabeth she's all i just see a tree and then a, a tear runs down jennifer lawrence's cheek and then she smiles and i'm like what <laughs> And then I pa- still pause the tree and just stared at it, stoned, going, uh. <laughs> and then like, I thought, he just tricked Jennifer Lawrence. If I'd done that, she would have seen her face or maybe not. It's like one of those 3D prints where you have to, like, un- Right. <laughs> I love those because you got to cross your eyes like the Polder or the uh, Amityville Horror House to see it. Anyway, House right. at the End of the Street. Did anyone famous she- direct it? Do we, should, do we know who that is? I don't think so. All right. Do you do you remember the twist though? Is it is it a twin thing? It's that he's never mind. I don't want to give it away. No, nobody's gonna nobody cares, Kelly. House Wait. of the End of the Street. All right, skip the next part if you haven't seen House of the End of the Street. Wait. Okay, so he turns out to be the one who killed them because they made him because she died on the swings when they were kids. So he's actually kidnapping girls and making them tend to be his sister and strapping them down. And then Jennifer Lawrence discovers it when she finds some tampon, a tampon box in the trash and then some contact lenses because he makes them wear contact lenses too. So they have his sister's color eyes. It's really stupid. But huh. the first one has a knife and is running around. Like, is, is she a kidnap victim? I didn't understand that. All right. And she gets stabbed really bad and then carried, her dead body is carried down the stairs and then the next scene... It's like her and Jennifer Lawrence moving away. And she doesn't, she's not limping or anything. She's like, yeah, okay, let's go. Bye. She just looks fine. You, you can like bounce back thing. from a stabbing, sure. Really? She's just like, eh. And Jennifer Lawrence is like, look at the tree. Like, if she had a stab wound, you wouldn't put your mom through a tree staring. All right. <laughs> back to what the 3x3 three three is. How's All right. The street, Tom? Well, let's do a 3x3. Three three. Uh,. The the topic this month is uh, kids being put to bed by their parents, and uh, I specifically thought of this because of a, a movie that we'll talk about in a little bit, um, but I'm going to have Kelly Wan start us off because he'll be introducing next month's topic with his third favorite scene of a kid being put to bed by parents or other people, by the way. It could be uh, older cousins. It could be babysitters. Uh, it's just bedtime uh. for kids. Kids getting tucked in bed. Kelly Wan... What's your third favorite example? And is this a dumb topic? Like, am I? I don't. Did you guys even? Challenging. It was challenging. Okay. For Um, me, maybe not for Dingus, because maybe Dingus watches more parenting films, and I just watch Jennifer Lawrence movies. I just, I, I actually really liked it because uh, I, early on, I lucked upon my number one, and it's a really rich choice for this topic. Well, and I just think, too, it's something that we've all uh, had done to us. Like, we all remember being put to bed, and it's something that, you know, Dingus, you've, you've raised a child. It's something that you've done. Uh, 
it's it's kind of a universal thing that allows two characters to sit and talk to each other or to interact uh, in a way that's kind of unique. You know, one is about to go to sleep, and then I, so I I've just seen it used in some interesting ways. And plus, I remember too. Well, you know what? We'll get to. Uh, when we start talking about my picks, something. So Kelly, why don't you start us off? What's your third favorite example of this? I was gonna say I like being the reader. Like I like putting the kid to bed. Like my friend's little daughter is reading Snow White one night, and she was like leaning on my arm and like wrapped her arm around me. Like, oh, that's sweet. I didn't like being read to as a child, so I didn't like being on the receiving end. Mm-hmm. Anyway, number three is uh, the movie E.T., where. Um, D. Wallace is reading Peter Pan to Gertie through Barrymore. And I remember really, okay, I might be stupid on this. I've been wrong a lot lately. But if I remember correctly, <laughs> this sequence of the movie comes after Gertie knows E.T.'s in the house. And I remember thinking, oh, that's awesome. There's an alien in the house. Gertie's not breaking the secret. Not only that, but she's still invested in Peter Pan and her mom. Like, oh, yeah, I can do both. <laughs> There's an alien in the house, but like I'm really into because it's the scene where um, Do Wallace is like, oh, and then Tinkerbell died, but then if you believe in fairies, do you believe in fairies? And then Grace like, I do, I do, and she gets really into it and she claps. And I remember going to a play of Peter Pan when I was a kid with Sandy Duncan, and they do that, they make you clap in the audience to resurrect <laughs> Tinkerbell. And I remember thinking, why are you making me your Deus Ex Machina? Like. <laughs> I'm seven, and it, like I don't really believe in fairies. So now you're gonna hit. And I was thinking it'd be really tragic if if Tinkerbell died. Like, no, you guys suck. She's dead. She's dead. And now we have to rewrite the whole third act. But, it would uh, be awesome if in one show they're just like, sorry, you guys didn't clap enough. I know. And then and then Peter Pan just breaks out in tears, and then you just they force you out of the theater. <laughs> I don't know. Just to see, I don't know. Just to add a little more to the stakes, like that could happen, and then you gotta you go to the audience to make sure that it's like voting. But anyway, uh, like, but it really, yeah. But I loved that Gertie's into Peter Pan, and uh, it made me like Gertie's character. So Gertie's Drew Barrymore. Yeah, and Dee Wallace is really, yeah, and she's putting her to bed and reading her Peter Pan. I wouldn't remember that her name was Gertie because I, I think Kevin Spacey's sort of grabbed that name for me yeah. in the moon <laughs> the older kid has a normal name too that's not memorable it's like elliot gertie and mike or something sean i forget the snaggletooth kid well gertie's probably short for gertrude yeah but they call her gertie all the time right. and i like that her name is kind of like et's it's got like an e and a t in it it's like it sounds like an abbreviation so does elliot <laughs> yeah that's true See what they did there? It's like Lucas and Luke Skywalker, Tom. <laughs> These movies are about us. I'm the Elliot. You know, all those hours I spent watching the stupid Stranger Things seasons, I only watched the first uh-huh. and the third, I, I should have just rewatched E.T. Now, E.T. doesn't – I feel like E.T. doesn't hold up. Oh, and really? The, yeah, there's like – but I only think it's like the last shot of it is E.T. going up the ramp while the music plays. And right. it goes on forever, dude. It goes on forever. He's like going up the ramp. And it's just like if you look at the composition of the shot, it's like this dumbass puppet just waddling really slowly, up this, standing in front of a clock asking it to be his kid's bedtime. No, but it's like just a, a thing going up a ramp really slow. It's boring. It's mm. better with the guns. Oh, that's right. The guns are taken. I forgot about that the whole thing. Yeah. Fake death is your third act. Oh, come on, it 
It's Game of Thrones 1.5. <laughs> it's like Glenn under show. the dumpster, E.T. in the freezer. Yeah. Yeah. And it's All just right. the act. I mean, I don't know. I like it was the same summer as Poltergeist. And that was the one where I was like, that's the good right. one. Like E.T. is kind of predictable and. Uh, but, but, I mean, compared to watching uh, a whole season of Stranger Things, I should have just watched E.T. Well, yeah. Yeah. Because E.T.'s more interesting than – and e. Elliot's more interesting than – those kids are better than – the Stranger Things kids suck. That's why I didn't like it. Those characters aren't that good. Mm. But, like, okay. Elliot getting drunk and E.T. getting drunk. Come on. Kisses Eric Elaniac at the frog thing, lets the frogs go. Wait, what? They really make a dent in each other's lives. <sighs> We've talked about this before. You never remember this happened. Erica, L- no, or... I remember the frog, but who, who, what's the, isn't the woman you just said someone who went on to a more lurid career? Yeah. 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 I don't remember Elliot, that was her. Elliot uh, turned her that way. He kissed her. She's tall in E.T., and then he has to stand on the dumb, on the fat kid's butt to reach out. Now up I feel dirty that I know her. who she is. Oh, but a good kind of dirty. <laughs> oh, God. No, she's great. She's uh, naked in uh, Bordello of Blood with Dennis Miller and... Angie Everhart. Ugh. He also right. popped out of a cake in Under Siege. Yes. Yeah, that's why I know. Call. That's how I know who she is, right? She's yeah. a Baywatch girl. She's a babe. All right. Hot, hot stuff. All Good right. times. And Elliot knew. Elliot broke her in for all of us. Which means ET kissed her too. ET broke in Baywatch. Think about it. <laughs> wow. Anyway, my number three is ET talk. All right, Dingus. What's your third favorite scene of this nature? All right. Uh. Here's a quote from it. I'm going to be right in the next room. Are, can you see that camera? Uh, I can see through that you through that camera. So uh, that's from the movie Aliens. And this is... Oh, that gun, that's oh, a yeah, great one. Good. Yeah, yeah, this is a good one. This is Ripley um, putting Newt to bed in the med lab. It's and, and Ripley's not strictly Newt's mother but she is a mother and they have a conversation about this about the fact that uh you know newt's asking well don't babies grow inside uh humans the way that aliens grow inside humans as well and ripley's like well it's kind of different and she's how do you know that well i had a baby um i had a little girl and newt picks up on the tense and says but you don't anymore no, she's gone, and Newt says, you mean she's dead. So in the original script, they have this really clunky bit of dialogue where Newt says, well, maybe, uh, and we could just try this for a little while, and if you don't like it, it's okay. I can take her place for a little while. Ew, ew. James Cameron, God. (laughs) Thank goodness that's cut out of it. Um, But it's just this beautiful moment where Ripley is assuring her, you know, I – I was a parent myself. I know how to do this. Um, and I'll be watching you right through that camera. And I'm not going to leave you. I will never leave you. Uh, and she gives her with the um, the special uh, wristwatch thing that will help her be tracked. Um, yeah. The, to learn about the pulse rifle, I think. Uh, and then <sighs> and Newt is no longer on the bed and she panics. Um doesn't she uh, take Casey and then the head falls off while she's like pulling Casey the doll to her? Well, she, you know, she's talking about the whole conversation is about bad dreams, and she says, she says "Well, Casey doesn't look like she has bad dreams, and that's the well, she doesn't have pl- <laughs> because she's made out of plastic." Ah, uh, 
and then there's the, the and the reason I thought of this, Tom, was uh, kind of the um, your weird claws thing from the uh, from the Jurassic Park movie, because um, I kept thinking about monsters mm-hmm. and Newt saying um, there aren't uh, adults say there aren't any real monsters, but there are, aren't they? Why do they say that to kids? And Ripley says, because most of the time it's true. But I love that most of the time it's true. Yeah. Um, and so she realizes through not being able to fool her about that doll that she's dealing with another level of human being. Right. And she just is honest with her. She's like, I'm, I'm going to see you right through that camera. So don't worry about it. That's a great one. All right. But in RL, a parent can go in answer yeah and also aliens don't exist like that so that's just a fictional story so go to bed but she couldn't have said that because they were in the alien world right right they knew they were in a horror movie kelly wand exactly yeah she knew the name of it when it started well most of mine uh most of the ones i was thinking of are horror movies and i think that has to do partly with uh my own upbringing and my own fascination with horror movies, which started from when I was a little kid and was totally freaked out seeing horror movies. And one of the things that made me think of this topic is I vividly remember having seen a movie. It, it might, and I even looked at it. I think it might have been a movie called Giant or Alien. In, wait, Invasion of the Giant Spiders, something like that. It's it's a <laughs> it's a dumb movie where they they literally take a VW and they put black felt over it and they make these big long legs and they slowly drive the VW in a field and it's supposed to look like a giant spider. And as a kid, I, I probably was even taken to see that at a drive-in. That that freaked me out because the spider like eats people. Uh, and this is a terrible movie that was shot in Wisconsin in probably like seventy, the mid seventies at some point. Uh, and I, I've since rewatched it, and it's ridiculous, and there's terrible continuity, of course. Sometimes the spiders are little. The the concept is that meteors come to Earth, and in them, they're, they're basically geodes, and they break open, and a spider crawls out, and then the spiders grow into giant spiders, and they attack cities and whatnot. Um, so I remember seeing this movie and being freaked out. It was either that or maybe the, the giant mantis, which is, I think, actually still kind of a cool movie from the 50s. Deadly mantis. Deadly mantis, thank you. Um, it's deadly, Tom. So one of these I've, I saw, and I remember being freaked out one night when my mom was putting me to bed and, and doing the thing about, you know, could you look in the closet? Could you make sure that, you know, that the, the, the hallway door is open? You know, would you check under the bed? Uh, and I remember at one point asking her, uh, could you open the, the blinds and look out the window? And her being exasperated with me and saying – you want me to? Why do you want me to look out the window? Do you think if I look out the window, there are going to be giant spider eyes looking in at you? Jeez. Oh, so specific. <laughs> exactly, oh. and that—that's that, my. I, I vividly remember as a kid thinking, "Well, yeah. I do now." Fuck, like that. Yeah, that's totally spider in, eyes. Yeah, the window became the most existed. terrifying thing in my bedroom at that point. Uh, and she meant well, but I just remember thinking that you just incepted me with this horrific image of a giant spider looking through the window. Uh, so that if so, the eyes are on the bottom of it, it's dumb. And then if it's on the top, it can't see you through the window. So. Well, I mean, even, you know, like there, there's the, the scene in, uh, I guess it's Lost World, where the little kid sees the dinosaur. Like there's that whole idea of something with a giant eye peeking in a window at you, 
whether yeah. it's the dinosaur in Lost World or or even the, the, the dinosaur eye in the car window in Jurassic Park in the original one. Like just a big, huge, scary eye looking at you through a window. That's terrifying, like a monster's eyeball. Um, get a life. Uh, Chris Elliott was worried there was an eye on the shower head looking at him. That didn't scare me so much. Like that, that was just weird. Not, yeah. I like being naked. So most of mine are horror movies where kids are being tucked in bed. And my third favorite, uh, and I, I, I think I'm kind of, I can't, I, I'm done with this movie for a little while uh, because it is, I think, too effective. And I don't, uh, I, I started, I started watching Hereditary because my third favorite pick is in Hereditary after the funeral. It's kind of a, a twofer. Uh, you see uh, Alex Wolf being tucked in by by Gabriel Byrne, and they've got a very sort of manly uh, rapport. Al, uh, Gabriel Byrne doesn't walk into the room. He just opens the door and is like, how you doing, sport? And Alex Wolf had a guitar, and he's putting it aside because he knows he's going to sleep now. And they talk about the funeral, and Gabriel Byrne says, are you sad? And Alex Wolf thinks, and he doesn't really say yes or no. He just kind of goes, eh. And Gabriel Byrne's like, yeah, I get it. Because it was her grandma who – Neither of – I mean she was weird. She was freaky. We found – we find out more about her over the course of the movie, but Alex Wolf definitely wasn't close to her for reasons that will become very clear over the course of the movie. Um, so that's their little bedtime exchange. And then we cut to Tony Collette tucking in – and I forget the actress's name, uh, but Charlie is the character's name. And they have a very different rapport and a very different relationship. And the things that Charlie is worried about at this point – uh, also, again, over the course of the movie, take on a very different tone when she says, you know, now that Grandma's gone, who's who's going to take care of me? And, and Tony Collette, just a little taken aback, and she says, well, I, I will, of course. Uh, and when when Charlie says of her grandma, she wanted a boy, like that becomes a huge plot point in the movie. But Tony Collette thinks she's just talking about being a tomboy. And she's like, oh, yeah, I was a tomboy, too. And. It's just this situation where Charlie, the little girl, has a very different perspective on what's happened and what's going to happen that her mother's not quite understanding. And it ties in with the entirety of the structure of Hereditary, which is these people don't see the signs for this horrible, horrible thing that's about to happen to them. And as is mentioned in the classroom, where they're talking about a a Greek tragedy – these signs are the, the these signs are, are literally given to them and they're put in front of them and they they don't see them and even it's discussed in the classroom does that make it more or less tragic if they never have a choice if it's something completely beyond their control and understanding uh, and this is part partly the start of that where Charlie's worried about certain things and Tony Collette doesn't understand the things that she is saying and that she's talking about uh, and it also gets to there's a little disturbing moment where she leans down to kiss uh, Charlie's shoulder because Charlie's turned away, and she sees written on the wall a weird word, Satoni, which we don't know what it means. She doesn't know what it is. Why is that? And this will also recur. She'll see other weird things written on the wall. Um, but so it's just it's a it's a touching moment where you see that they have a very different relationship than her husband and her son, uh, and where. The ominous things are starting to be revealed. And so my whole thing, too, with Hereditary, I, I just – I started watching it and just decided I, I can't I, – I don't it, – it's just so dark and unrelentingly malicious uh, and mean-spirited. I, I think it's a fantastic movie. 
and it was one of my favorites of the year. But I just can't watch it right now. I, I think I'm done with it for a while. So. How many times have you seen it? Oh, good lord! Easily like ten. Like I, I saw it. I really? saw it three times oh. when it was in theaters. Uh, yeah, I've I've seen it a lot. Um, How many times have you seen Midsummer? Well, that's that's partly too, and I'm looking forward to our Midsummer podcast. Is you know where does Ari Oster go? Ari Oster go after uh, doing Hereditary, and you know we'll talk about that on the podcast later. So. My German ex-girlfriend watched Hereditary, and she just rewatched the part in Hereditary. It's kind of harrowing, like over and over, cackling, laughing. That's how different she is uh, from you. Yeah, think of that. Interesting. Tells you something about people, doesn't it? It does. Everyone approaches strategy with their own package. It's a Rorschach test for us all. Yeah. Yeah. Tells me you it's better. Like well, yeah. So she did. Um, wait, is it my number two? Kelly Wan, like, your second favorite bedtime moment in a movie. Uh, my number two is in Jane Got a Gun at the beginning. <laughs> when, uh... Oh, my gosh. This is what I'm talking about. I couldn't think of any other ones. <laughs> I well, love I thought this. I had a good one for number one. But... Go, no, I love this. Go ahead. And she's, she's making shadow animals. <laughs> and she keeps like having the kid make water, she tells him at one point, I think. So, make water. And then it, she, and her story is just total gibberish. And then there's a bunny rabbit. And then there's a wolf. And then there's an upside down tree. <laughs> and the kid asks, this is where I go, oh, it's terrible writing. It's like the kid goes, do good people ever turn up in the upside down tree? No. <laughs> go to bed. No. She's good natured about it. It's like the upside down tree. Ugh. I right. think, too, this is the point in the movie, and I, I might be misremembering, where I realized that happened. Natalie Portman's nails were really clean. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, that. everything about her is really clean. You know? Right. Did and then she's riding the horse, and she looks like a fucking supermodel yeah this is not a frontier family yeah no that's not what i thought that movie was i thought it was going to be like quick and the dead right yeah but it's not (laughs) anyway all right gene got a gun animals number two i came up with three that's my review of that one Welcome, slaves. Dingus, what do you have to top that? Jane got a gun. Take that, Dingus. There's a blast from the past. Mr. Aliens. (laughs) All right, here's a quote for a minute. Wanna rub Eskimo? And butterfly. So um, this North. is North. What'd you say? What? North with Bruce Willis, directed by Rob Reiner. Yeah. My guess. I was trying to guess it. It's from a movie called The Untouchables, um, and it's this beautiful moment where uh, it, it's great as as juxtaposition because this is uh, Elliot Ness and his wife played by uh, Patricia Clarkson. uh, What? Get out of here. No way. Yeah. Wow. Putting their daughter to bed in this really sweet, idyllic family moment right after the bat scene, uh, the baseball bat scene with De Niro. Uh, It comes right after that. And Elliot Ness walks down the stairs and he hears um, them doing their goodnight prayer before they put... uh, the little girl to bed and so mom and daughter are kneeling before the bed for the side of the bed and they're doing that creepy prayer that you know if i die before my sleep prayer which i always found to be 
a horrible prayer to have a kid say before they go to sleep. It's but a very worst-case scenario imagining, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and one of the things I like about this, and this is a, another thing I like about this particular topic, is that it's it, – and you kind of touch on this a little bit when you're talking about hereditary. But it's not just that different parents have different relationships with their different kids, but the kid has a different relationship with each parent. And, and even in the saying goodnight ritual or the tucking in ritual – um, each parent might do something a little different. One parent might be expected to check the closet, um, well as whereas the other one just isn't expected to do that for whatever reason. The kid doesn't feel like that parent needs to, um, and it's just very personal as far as how the kid feels about it. And some, it's mostly dictated by the relationship particulars between the kid and that particular parent. And you see this in a very quick way when they put the little girl to bed and she, that bed is probably the narrowest bed I've ever seen. It's like a plank. Um, That's what beds were like back then, Dingus. Ironing boards. She has like a little doll, like a little raggedy Ann. uh, And the bed's barely wide enough for the doll. Uh, but she lies down and Patricia Clarkson just gives her a kiss on the lips and says, good night, honey. And then, uh, Kevin Costner's Elliot Ness leans down to give her a kiss. And then they do their nighttime ritual, which is Eskimo, which is where they rub noses back and forth and butterfly, which is where they brush each other's cheek with their eyelashes. And that's just something that's particular to the two of them. Uh, and they say good night to the little girl. And Elliot Ness is prepared to go downstairs and do some more work to prepare for the next day of work. And Patricia Clarkson's like, you worked today, right? And he's like, yeah. She goes, you still have some energy? (laughs) He goes, yeah. Then come up here and brush my hair, detective. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's the end of that scene. Uh, But the euphemisms the truly great thing about this is this feeling of protected that, that the little girl's protected. And Elliot shows up the next night after, you know, presumably after she's gone to bed and one of uh, Ness's men is waiting out front um, just to threaten him for a minute to say, you should look after your family. And then he drives. Yeah, it's really creepy. And that's when Elliot Ness sends his family away. And right before they drive off with uh, with one of the cops to be spirited away just to be taken so that they're protected from Al Capone. Uh, the little girl leans out at the door of the car and goes, uh, Eskimo and butterfly dad. Um, so it's this sweet callback to, you're not going to be putting me to bed for a while. So you, we better get one more in. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I love this topic. Right. Um, little known fact, the little girl was played by, uh, Elena Eleniak. I did not know that. <laughs> you mean Erica? You're thinking of Elena Steen. See? Inceptions. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I got the last name right. Um, yep. that's the, that's, so you, you've mentioned Untouchables a lot. That's the first thing you've said in a long time that's actually made me want to rewatch Untouchables. That's Patricia Clarkson. Yeah. Wow. All right. She's gorgeous. Oh, my goodness. Way to go, Brian De Palma. Mm-hmm. I think I'm glad someone appreciates good filmmaking. <laughs> I do. Law enforcement. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> what? All right. B- before a brawl breaks out, my second favorite uh, tucking in scene 
And this is a movie, this is another horror movie. Hereditary, I'm, I'm just done with for a while because it's too brutal. I don't need to be beat down like this. This is a horror movie I easily watched through again because I, I find this one ultimately empowering. Uh, uh, I love Babadook for Essie Davis and how good she is and how she breaks through all the frustration and the, the agony and, and just the the illusions that she's having and uh, how she comes through at the end. There's just this great, like, just fierce female motherly empowerment that'll, that comes out of the end of Babadook, I think. So I'm looking forward to that, watching the horrible things happen in Babadook. But what I'd forgotten, oh, my God, that kid in Babadook. Oh my God, so freaking annoying! I totally forgot uh, yeah. how awful that is, and also how, as the movie goes on and awful things start happening to him, you feel awful for thinking he's awful, which is very much how Essie Davis's character feels. I felt good for feeling awful. Well, you you definitely that's not you're that's not the way you're supposed, supposed to feel. To. You're supposed to feel bad for uh, the poor little kid because at first you what? hate him. Yeah, um, I still hate him. But when, when she kids. starts, like, That's waving a knife around at him and terrifying him and calling him a little shit, she tells him to eat shit at one point. Kelly Wan, you should feel awful when that happens. She learned that line from him. <laughs> no, she didn't. Maybe. Feel bad for the dog. What? Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. You know the dog's going to get it, too. Oh, but so my, so my favorite scene from it is the one where uh, the little kid goes over to pick up a book, and it's one she hasn't seen before, even though, spoiler, she wrote it. Uh, and it's the, the Babadook book, and her growing unease as she's reading through the different pages, knowing that getting him to sleep has been an issue, has been a problem. And she's realized that somehow her son has dragged over from his shelf this weird, horrifying book about a monster that hides in closets and, and will come and kill you. Uh, and how she keeps trying to say, oh, maybe we should read something else. And he's like, no, no, I want to read this one. But then eventually he gets traumatized and starts crying, and then it freaks him out for the rest of the movie. And this Babadook thing manifests itself and just terrifies this poor little kid. Uh, but eventually they, they break through it. But I just love being introduced to the Babadook as a child's book. Uh, yeah. and, and that's how that's like how it, it, how it begins. It sounds like a child's book. It looks like a child's book. That's the interesting thing about it. Child children's books. Well, it looks look very <laughs> it looks very like Edward Gorey, like a child's book yeah, that's not afraid Adam's to family. have because it's a really freaky face. Like you wouldn't put that, yeah. and it's got the scary hands too. Like they're not dumb because you don't see them. Like they're 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 scary hands. They're like claw Weird hands. claws. Yeah, yeah. Um, With spider eyes in them. Like, <laughs> like in uh. The so Duke doesn't have to look at you through the window from the outside because he's in the room, Kelly Wand. Right. Like, uh, have you checked the children guy? Have you checked the children guy? Yeah. He the babysitter when a, when a stranger calls? Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah. Thinking of. Huh. That's All who right. I'm babying. Well, you What's remember Bob does... What's the antagonist name? In... Uh, Charles Durning. Okay, I see how that's going to be. Isn't he in that? Uh, the Bob yeah. does telephone her. I don't know if you remember, but she does get a Bob phone call. I didn't remember that. Yeah. Is it collect? No, I don't. I I think she has to pay. For, no, no, yeah, he has to pay for it. So no, she doesn't get charged for that. Okay, good. Uh, all right, so so Babadook, my second favorite. Uh, putting to sleep. Also, too, there are like there are a lot of scenes too, like where she 
like like normally you have a, a sleeping child in a movie and the child looks cherubic and adorable and and, and vulnerable. Yeah. The the scenes where the little kid is sleeping in Babadook where he's grinding his teeth and kicking her and clenching uh, at her face. Everything about him's annoying. Yeah, yeah, annoying yeah exactly. It's just really grating stuff. Uh, it's like it could happen. Yeah, don't have kids. That's the message of that movie. Uh, actually, not ultimately. I would say it's it's don't have parents. Not her parents. When she's talking about her, uh, when she's just going, I can't sleep. Like the principal or something. Or There's the a doctor who she needs to get medicine. Med- she she persuades the doctor to give her sleeping pills to give him. Yeah. Yeah. Is Too that much. what you were talking about? The... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But she. It's the first time she kind of loses it. It's after the park where something a little unclear happens. Like a, it's implied, like he jumps off monkey bars or something. Well, yeah, he definitely jumps off monkey bars because she's not the implication. He's, he's, not, he's not injured. Not, he's not injured, but he's hurt, and he he you know he throws a tantrum afterwards. Right. Yeah. But then later on, when like she goes to the doctor, though, things have gotten worse. It's always worse. Yeah. Is she Australian or New Zealand? What is it? Uh, I think she is Australian, and part, yeah. So Jennifer Kent, who wrote and directed Babadook, and by the way. You guys will be seeing this, and I hope you'll be hearing more about it as the year goes on. Jennifer Kent's last movie that she wrote and directed, The Nightingale, uh, very different uh, from yeah. The Babadook, but similarities. Uh, the Nightingale is just uh, astonishingly good. Um, uh, but I think so. The Nightingale, very, very Australian story, and I think Essie uh, Davis is Australian, even though she's in an Irish horror movie uh, called Isolation with Ruth Negga that I really like. Um, and and also too, like there's a lot of there's a there's like a lot of like like Essie Davis is gorgeous, like I I forgot, like she's a beautiful, incredibly beautiful woman, uh, and there's a lot of stuff where the camera's like really close to her face in Babadook. I I just forgotten how gorgeous she is. Um, all right, Dingus or no Kelly Wand, it is time for your favorite bedtime scene in all of moviedom. What do you got? My number one is the motion picture, The Babysitter, with uh, the great Sabara Weaving in it. And, like, the kid in it is named Cole. And uh, they're like bros together. They're kind of fun. They, like, do dance moves and hang out and party. He's going to bed. And it's the one scene of schmaltz in the movie where he's kind of crying. He's like, am I lame? She's all, no, Cole, you're awesome. You're the best. You're super cool. Okay, bye. It's like the last time in the movie she's nice to him. Uh, trying to sacrifice this ritual. She's so awesome in that, though. Yeah, I, I know. she's just. If you think she's fun and, and ready or not, I mean, babysitters just wow. Look at her go. Yeah. She steals it, and Bella Thorne's in it, so she has a lot to. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, Bella Thorne. I, in a cheerleader yeah. outfit. Yeah. And there's a shirtless guy. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, no, I remember all of her her little friends and stuff, but uh, yeah. I totally forgotten about them just because she's so fantastic in it. She kind of upstages yeah. everyone else. Yeah. Well, she has a lot of range because you don't know about her real character. Like the first third of the movie is just how, what an awesome girl she is. Right. Like right. She, and, and Cole's like he he obviously crushes on her, but he's he he likes her as a friend too. Like she's just fun to be around. Like they really enjoy each it other. It definitely it's this weird. Uh, Which is a weird setup. Yeah. Well, it's this weird child's fantasy of it's like a pre-sexual. Fant- child's fantasy of what a, the ideal woman is. Right. Uh, and, and it's he, like, like McGee yeah. of all people can channel that, which is it's not, hardly surprising. Yeah. 
Yeah, that he made her because like Amber Heard's just like a lust object. In right. Three days to kill. Thank you for mentioning my other work. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but like yeah, it's his coming of age, and then I think the last line of the movie is, "I don't need a babysitter anymore." It's like there's some there's some good set pieces in that too. I seem to recall. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, it's a. Uh, I mean, it's kind of predictable. It's kind of like Ready or Not, and Cole is the Samara weaving of that. Right, right. Uh, it's kind of similar, but like she's the... I forget any of the bad guys. Yeah. This week uh, I read uh, just like a little blurb about that where the reviewer, it's just, it was just a mini review, was talking about Samara weaving and said that she's really good in a movie called I'm Ready or Not. <laughs> Dude, I'm seeing so many mis like spellings and typos in the news lately. Like I think Trump's infected everything. Never mind. Don't get me started. But yeah, it's just it, internet content, they don't proofread anything. I just love it. That's what you say. I'm ready or not. I'm ready or not. Yeah, like you don't that's know. not even you know you're one right. of those two things. <laughs> oh, it was like uh, when Quentin was on the boat with Jaws the Shark, Tom. Shut up, uh, <laughs> Quentin. Oh, God. Quint- Casper Van Dien. Casper Van Dien. about Jaws. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Quentin. <laughs> Quentin. I love it when people add syllables and letters to words to make a brog. <laughs> like, do it grammatically. Like, irregardless. Like, let's make it even longer and wrong. Never mind. All right. Yes. All right. Dingus, favorite bedtime scene. Classic babysitter. Uh, I'm worried that I took yours. So we might have to talk about this at the same time. That's okay. Um, So here's a bit of dialogue from it. For the garden party? I have no idea what you're talking about. Dad. Mm, Did you take mine? Give me another line. I don't know that one. Um... I don't, I can't give you another one. The Babinski thing is the closest. Um, I don't like rats in the best of situations, and that one was sending a signal. The Departed. It's from a movie called Coraline. Is that your... Oh, uh, no, 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 not at all. I haven't seen Coraline in forever. I'm curious to hear about this. Um, you could pick three three distinct ones from this movie alone, and... Uh, it was a joy watching Coraline again this this uh, this week, um, basically because I just thought there's got to be something in there. By and by goodness, there are three different ones that are excellent. Uh, of course, there's a first time, you know, her own parents uh, are are actually saying to her, or she's hearing them say, "I don't have time for you. I need to write. Go away. Go to bed." I mean, they're doing the Kelly one. Go to bed. They're not. They're not putting her to bed. They're just saying, "Go, go away." And isn't it? It's the talented Fanning, right? Yes, it's Elle. No, it's Dakota. <laughs> Elle's the pretty. There's the pretty one and the talented one. Dakota Fanning's the talented one. It's right? Dakota. Yeah. And um, and so then when she finds the other mother, uh, the other mother feeds her this awesome dinner, and then she's like, "Well, I guess." Uh, Coraline says, "I guess I better get back to my." Uh, first parents and the other mother takes her to her room uh, which is beautifully appointed and tucks her in and kisses her goodnight Um, and this is a new experience for Coraline it feels really good this is this is something that 
that she hasn't experienced in a long time, this kind of this level of attention. And it's a beautiful little moment. Um, and then as the movie progresses, you get this sense of her parents partly being revealed as as not exactly her perception, but also partly waking up to the fact that she's revealing things that she needs from them that they're not giving her. Mm-hmm. And when they uh, go missing at one point, uh, and this isn't technically, the, but it feels like it, she makes them out of pillows and other things uh, and puts them in bed and lies down between them so that they can put her to bed. But they're fake because she misses them so much. And then, of course, the final one is is them finally coming around and putting her to bed properly and her mom. I mean, it's just, I don't want to give too much away, even though it's a 2009 movie, it's 10 years old. If you haven't seen Coraline, you really should because there's this great, there's this great moment where they they put her to bed. Um, and there's three of these moments in the movie, and each one has its own sense of meaning to it. And uh, and Coraline is just a gorgeous movie. It, it not only looks beautiful, but it just has such a great message in so many ways about parenting and about being a kid and feeling in it, like you're an alien and feeling unhappy but not quite knowing why. And maybe part of it is your perception and part of it is true and you're not sure which is which. Uh, and I love the way that the movie sets all of that up. So, uh, so my number one is Coraline. Man, that's great, Dingus. I'm glad you picked that. Yeah, I love that I, movie. I like Coraline because it's dark and trippy. And Terry Hatcher is a kind of a sexy spider mom. Yeah, yeah. I'm still interested. And, <laughs> and it does kind of become a little bit of a horror movie in a way. Yeah, yeah. And oh, yeah, I know. It totally does. The things that you were saying about the Babadook, and I had never made any connection between the two kind of reminds me of it um and a flawed protagonist who's the dad anyone famous oh wait (laughs) now remember all right i I thought it was ron livingston the the singing voice he eventually has the the other dad has a, a song that he sings or that sings him as he puts it um that sounds like one of the guys from they might be giants but i haven't listened to it to make sure um, but Ian McShane is in it. Terry Hatcher's in it. Who's Ian uh, McShane? I think he's Babinski, the weird acrobat dude. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The circus. Right, right. Um, the accent. There's this whole weird uh, show that they put on that the that Mrs. Forcible and whatever the other one's name is put on at this theater. Right. Uh, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. It's a gorgeous movie. I wish Pixar would make more movies like Coraline, like kind of horrific, sort of dark theme. You know, I think they thought they were doing that with that Toy Story 3 scene. <laughs> yeah. Really? That's bull- Probably. Wow. They're like, oh, look how dark we're going to get. Yeah, man. We're totally we're shooting the, the dice. Think that the kids, the, the, the toys are going to die. Ah, we're going to trick yeah. them. Yeah, Cars 3 gave me nightmares. Was so... <laughs> I really think Henry Selleck is at the top of his game with Coraline. Yeah. As yeah. much as I yeah, like I Nightmare. Agree. I just love Coraline. Yeah. Right, I came to it late and was like, oh, I should have seen this on the screen. All right, well, you oh, guys had a month to see this. You didn't, so you're both fired. Uh, there's going to be some <laughs> some more spoilers in this. Uh, the uh, Casey Affleck's movie, Light of My Life, 
which is uh, sort of his iteration of Cormac McCarthy's The Road, about a father and his child in the in a post-apocalyptic situation. And the movie is very much about their relationship. And Casey Affleck wrote and directed it. Uh, and I, it's, I think it's very, very good. Um, and it opens with uh, a father and his child camping. They're out camping in a tent. Actually, this is a little unfair because if you read a synopsis of it or if you know anything about this movie, you know that there's a post-apocalypse. When I first started watching it, I don't think I knew this. So you're watching and you're thinking, oh, there's a, there's a dad uh, and I think, I guess it's his son, and they're camping. And uh, it's bedtime and he's telling a story. And the story is... And you can tell, too, in the relationship. Uh, and, and this is what it, this is a long sequence. As I say, it's probably like opening, I don't know, eight, ten minutes of a, a father telling his child a bedtime story. And it you can tell to Casey Affleck's like improvisational skill uh, as an actor. He's doing a great job playing a father who's improvising a bedtime story because he starts <laughs> telling the story and his kid is old enough where there's some pushback like no i don't want this story you know make it different so he's having to like work around what the kid wants and the story that he comes around to telling is kind of about like noah's ark it's like a take on noah's ark and at a certain point in the story his his child he's he looks like a little boy says um that's a little that's unlikely that there are only two of each species isn't it dad and casey alfleck is like yep that's I guess I never thought about it, but I think that's unlikely. And then this little kid says, uh, am I the last girl of my species? And he says, no, of course not, honey, of course not. And, and then she says, well, will I, will I ever meet another girl? And he's like, I, I don't know. And what, what, what we're introduced to here is this particular apocalypse is all of the women in the world dying out. And he is in this unique situation where he has had a daughter uh, during this plague, which was, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And he has raised this daughter in a world where there are no other girls, where the world has basically gone mad looking for women. Uh, and there's a so a, a father with a growing daughter is in a uniquely difficult situation. And there's something very biblical, too, about and also Shakespearean with all of the, the gender stuff, with him having to raise a child and hide the fact that she's a woman, that she's a girl. And the story starts up with her basically on the verge of, of pubescence. I mean, she's, I guess, 11 or 12. Um, but he's trying to disguise her as a boy whenever anyone else is around. Um, so the fact that he's told this story about Noah's Ark, which when you think about it is really apocalyptic and it's, it's, it's basically Noah's Ark adjacent is he tacks mm -hmm. this story onto the Noah's Ark myth. But the fact that this movie opens with a story about Noah's Ark, which is an apocalypse, which is humanity being irredeemable and being wiped out and God wanting to start over. So God killing everyone. But there is this inherent element of Noah's Ark, too, that humanity will be given a second chance. Um, all of this cultural baggage that comes with 
talking about Noah's Ark as, as a disaster, as a, as a divine event, as something that happens to humanity. All of this is kind of realized over the course of the movie, I feel. Uh, and it's a canny bit of screenwriting. You know, very much when I talk about whenever there's a lecture or a character's reading a book, a director will use that lecture, something in that book, to somehow address or reflect what he's talking about or he or she is in the the movie. It's very much this story that improvisationally gets spun out at the beginning of Light of My Life ties into what we discover and how the movie unfolds and how this apocalypse, where all women have been wiped out of the the face of the earth, how this apocalypse plays out. Um, So uh, I just love – and also just the, the young girl, her name is Anna Pianowski, I think. Um, the the relationship that Casey Affleck and this young girl as an actress have is, I, I mean, you know, we know now how amazing Casey Affleck is an a, as an actor, uh, and to see a movie chiefly be about his interaction with a young 10, 11, 12-year-old girl uh, is just, it's chilling and heartwarming and the situation that they're in, it's just devastating knowing, too, that, that, you know, the lengths he's got to go to to hide who she is, and, like, he can't call her by a girl's name, he can't let her wear her hair long, when he sees her looking at a jacket with little bedazzle bits on it, because that's the kind of thing she wants to wear, he has to tell her, no, you can't go anywhere near that, take that off, you cannot wear that, um, like it's devastating to watch this situation where a parent the world is so bad for for women that a parent knows that his child will be doomed as she gets older um it's like what what did we watch oh right right i'm just not thinking of this uh in a quiet place i remember watching a quiet place where emily blunt is pregnant and the conceit of this world is that anything that makes noise will get killed and thinking that her pregnancy is basically uh, a death sentence for them. Mm-hmm. But the movie works around that and sort of pretends, hey, we've got a way that they're going to address this. And I felt like that was glossing it over a bit. Um, this movie has none of that. Like, this movie knows, look, if you're gonna, if he's going to raise a daughter in this world where no women exist, he's screwed. She's screwed. Like, th- there's nothing that can happen. There's no way that this can end well. Uh, like Maggie, too. With the, the zombie thing? Yeah, or she. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's fair enough. Because right, she gets infected, and he has to watch her turn. Yeah. Okay. You know, that's yeah. a good. I'll accept that reference, Kelly Wand. At first, I was like, wait a minute, you just brought up a Schwarzenegger zombie movie. But yeah, I forgot. That's yeah. right, Tom. You didn't watch it correctly. You need to explain <laughs> it to you. Explain wow. how the movie temperature works. <laughs> what? I'm sorry, Tom, it... for that interruption. He just grabbed the headset. Is light of my life set? Um, as if it were taking place now, just an apocalypse happens now, or is it in yeah. another? No, it's, not, it's not a period piece at all. It's like, a, yeah, what if the world? What if? Uh, 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 it's the ideas of. I mean, it, it's basically to tell this story. Uh, but the conceit is, what if there's a virus that killed all women in the world in the course of like a few weeks? Children and um, men. Exactly, exactly, but, Kelly Wand. But where children and men doesn't explain what's going on. It doesn't explain or how it happened. How it happened. And right, right. Children of Men is just women stopped getting pregnant, but there were still women around. I thought uh, there was there was a plague in that too, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't. Um, 
I, I think I there's an implication it, that it is some medical thing, but I don't. Yeah, they had yeah. explained it to show like that's why they know it's permanent. Right, right, right. And this, it's just, uh, it's, it's supposedly some virus that only affects women. And the movie doesn't dwell on it. It doesn't. It's very much like Children of uh, Men, yeah. where it's just like, look, this is just to. I'm just going to lay this out there to uh, explain that this is my premise and it's going to tie into the storytelling. This isn't a movie about the mechanics of a virus or anything. Here's my premise. You know all you need to know. Now I want to tell you a story. A White uh, Plague by Frank Herbert. Well, the, the reason I ask about the uh, whether we're a period piece is because looking at a bedazzled coat, he can just say that his son's gay, can he? Um, well, he, that's a, actually the movie doesn't bring that up, but you have to wonder like what you know, in if it's been ten years that humanity has been without women, I mean that makes me wonder what does that do to homosexuality? Like do certain people just just do more people think okay, well I, I guess I'm gay now? Uh, the movie yeah. doesn't bring that up, Dingus, because it's not oh. interested really in exploring that. Uh, it's just basically showing a young child who wants to who's starting to become a woman and is curious about things. Uh, and you know, how, how terrible is it that her dad can't allow that to happen? Right. Um, uh, there's, uh, yeah, well, you know, you guys should see this cause I, again, like the nightingale, I think it's something that we'll be talking about, uh, as the, the year the progresses. The year. Um, but the, anyway, so the, the bedtime story, it's the opening scene, uh, it reminds me, too, of the opening scene in a movie called Carriers uh, with Chris Pine and Piper oh. Perabo, uh, where it's it's a bunch of – and any horror movie that starts with kids in a car driving somewhere, ugh. <laughs> and Carriers starts that way. It's, oh, God, there's kids in a car, and they're driving somewhere for, like, a vacation. They've got a surfboard, uh, and they're playing 20 questions. And someone, you know, someone's thinking of a famous person, and the questions are, okay, are you a celebrity? Are you male or female? Uh, are you living or dead? And then the answer to are you living or dead is, well, that's kind of a stupid question to ask these days. And that's like the first inkling you have that, wait a minute, uh, everybody's dead? Well, I don't understand. Uh, and then you realize they're in an apocalypse. Uh, it's the same thing with Anna Pianowski saying, uh, am I the last girl? Am I the only girl of my species? That's a dumb line because they wouldn't have played 20 questions. You wouldn't have gotten that far in the game and then made that point. Mm, uh, I disagree. I, you why play do you something else. Pardon? You know, well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go, hey, let's find the license plate. There's no women. Because they're the personalized license plate. Oh, you makers. think the dumb question is, am I alive or dead? Yeah. Oh. Probably their go. hearts aren't... I, I think they're... they're Nobody's really trying to win the game of 20 questions, Kelly Wand. They're just ripping through the normal things that you ask. Are you yeah. a vegetable or mineral? Like that kind of thing. Are you a man or woman? That's a stupid question to ask. These days, I could have said that too. Same. Well, no, no. no. I'm t so the, the 20 questions is the movie Carriers, which is a different thing. Oh. Uh, the Am I the Last Girl of My Species is the movie Light of My Life. They're just movies where if you don't know it's about <laughs> apocalypse, there's one line that is intentional there's a line partway through where you realize that you're not looking at what you think you're looking at namely a dad and his child on a camping trip or four good-looking attractive kids going on a vacation with a surfboard like there's something very different going on and you realize that with one specific line uh, it would have been cool at the end of 12 angry men if you find out they were the last people alive and they were just doing a murder trial because they were bored <laughs> 
That's that can work both ways. And I've told you this before that watching Leave No Trace, I kept thinking, are we going to find that out while we're watching this movie? That it's an apocalypse? Yeah. Or Moby yeah. Dick's killed everyone but Captain Ahab. He's <laughs> the last man. It's like John Heston. John Renninger writes, I've only got two. I guess I got to pick the I Love You 3000 scene from Avengers Endgame. It was so totally stark to say, I'm going to sell get all it? your toys. Uh, I don't get it. I don't even remember the scene. What? Can yeah, you explain it, Kellywand? Dingus can explain it because he probably had to see it multiple times. Dingus, what's the I Love You 3000 scene from Avengers Endgame? Um, I, I can it's only Hawkeye? remember it. I can't remember the... Yeah, it is. It's him putting his kid to bed, I guess. They're having a barbecue at the beginning, even though. Yeah, but at the same time, then he's not putting her to bed. <laughs> and Stark's an Iron Man. Is it? Are they like quantifying how much they love each other or something like mathematically? Uh, but using Bernie Mac as a metaphor. I don't know. I John Renninger's going to have to fill us in. I'm All right. Afraid. There is a great bit of poetry at the end of the scene in Light of My Life where. Where, where she says, how much do you love me? And, the, you know, he comes up with a quantity, and then she says, he says to her, how much do you love me? And she has to come up with a quantity. And it's, it's like there's this great kid logic to it, but there's also just this beautiful poetic element to it that, uh, that's how the scene ends. So I'm guessing that's what it is, is probably at some point the little girl says to Tony Stark, I love you 3,000, and then Tony Stark uses some Google, Googleplex number or something, I'm guessing. When I was a kid, me and my brother would go infinity times infinity, and then we'd have to, we'd end it with can't beat it. Like <laughs> <laughs> called it. We had to right. include yeah. that phrase. Like I just said, you can't beat it because it's infinity times infinity. <laughs> like the math alone is not enough to carry the load, but I've just now legally bound it. So I'm guessing Infinity or Avengers Endgame was something like that, and then Tony Stark ends with I'm going to sell all your toys. Oh, that's right. Doesn't he? He doesn't have a, have a hologram it, speaking to his family or something. Mm, maybe. Does he have a kid in Iron in Endgame? Yeah, he's got a little girl, a little daughter. Remember, because that's why he doesn't want to go through time and save the world, because he's got a daughter now. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. See, that's what you're dealing with, John Renninger. <laughs> I love it when the <laughs> listeners write some kind of super clever thing, and then we're like, "What?" <laughs> Ten minutes. But then John Must be continues. Really that the best has to be the Zuzu petal scene from It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart saying that when she went to sleep, it would be a whole garden was great, but the little girl actress saying it will is such a beautiful moment, John Renninger says. Hmm. There's someone named Zuzu. What is Zuzu petals? Yeah, I don't... The title puts me off. I don't want to see a movie called that. Zuzu is one of the daughters in... He has uh, like rose petals for her and pretends that oh. he takes it out of his pocket to give Isn't her. Isn't it just Scrooge without Christmas, that movie? Because Zuzu Petals sounds like a stripper's name, which is why it's a little confusing. Well, it was Zuzu, the Brazilian singer. We don't know what she becomes later in life. That's a good point. Tyler Schubert bids us all hello. Says, I've been listening to the show for years, and I quickly want to say, and then he writes this in all caps. So imagine this is being shouted. I quickly want to say, thank you. All caps. Uh-huh. 
listening to you guys fills my uh, many hours of driving with, uh, oh, get this, now you know he's, Gibberish. now, well, yeah, now we know he's pulling our leg. He says, uh, it fills his many hours of driving with intellectual stimulation. <laughs> and much Wait, more importantly, who does he think he's writing? <laughs> he might have missent this. Yeah, let's find out if they're actually bedtime things. Look at that tree. Nope, here we go. And he's on the same wavelength as one of us. I only came here. I only came up with one movie, and it's likely to get me at least pulled over, if not jailed. And the line that he starts with is, "My mommy always said there were no monsters, no real ones, but there are." End quote. Hmm. Hmm. He says it's from Aliens. Uh, Ripley putting Newt down to bed just after they fortified a position and feel somewhat safe. I love how Ripley tries to comfort Newt by telling her to be like Casey. And uh, Tyler thinks that uh, we need to have explained to us that Casey is the severed head of the doll. Uh, uh, after looking inside and saying she doesn't see any bad dreams, only to be reminded that the little girl has gone through trauma when she responds, Casey doesn't have bad dreams because she's just a piece of plastic. Now, here's where Renninger thinks – or no, no, sorry. That was uh, Tyler Schubert. Sorry, Tyler. Thinks he's going to get pulled over. He says, I know Ripley is not technically Nuke's parent. However, she does show a strong maternal instinct to protect her, and I'd like to believe she would have adopted her, given the chance. Or uh, put her in charge, like Hudson says. Maybe she does adopt her. We don't know what happened. Oh, actually, no. She, that's no, right. She can't. We know yeah. what happens. Okay, right. That's the sad part. <laughs> it's all for nothing. I forgot that that's canon, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, Tyler, I didn't mean to make you think that it was restricted to parents. This was a wonderful pick on both your and Dingus's part. Uh, Tyler says, I've always loved this movie. It'll always be one of my favorites for their heavy use of practical effects. But after the birth of my son, that particular scene has deeper impact with me. Uh, Casey is the son's name. Rhiannon McLean says, Dear Sweet Tom Chick, Dingus and Uh Kelly Wand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's true. Number three. In Adam's family, whoever tucks in Wednesday has to give a goodnight kiss to the decapitated head of her doll. <laughs> the body hangs on the outside of her bedroom door. Well, that's adorable. I don't remember that. That's good. Would well, this have been Christina that... Ricci Wednesday? Yeah. yeah. I feel uncomfortable uh-huh. thinking about that. Number two, in Poltergeist, not the Sam Rockwell one, I presume. Uh, Dad is trying to settle his kids for to, into sleep while a storm rages outside. Oh, this is a great one. This yeah. is a great one. Yeah. In an attempt to soothe them, he tells them to count the seconds between the yeah. flash of lightning and the accompanying rumble of thunder. After he leaves, the kids' counting indicates the storm is drawing closer and closer. Yeah, I love that. Right. I love it. <laughs> I love it when a parent's way to calm them down backfires horribly. <laughs> and he, this is a great uh, Spiel, vintage Spielberg right here. Smash cut to the entire family piled into the bed together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those were the days. Where's that Spielberg, I ask you? And then finally, oh, here we go. Rhiannon uh, picks Aliens, which is obviously the greatest, and everyone will pick, she says. Certainly Dingus and uh, Tyler. I didn't remember it, but it's a good one. I know, yeah, same here. Rhiannon says, don't let the bedbugs bite. They mostly come at night. Mostly. Yay, Rhiannon. Arthur Jill Volandarawalali says, number two, Argo. Ben Affleck (laughs) puts his son to bed and notices all of his Star Wars toys. This gives him an idea to use a fake movie to try to save the Americans in Iran. Ooh, sorry, they're Canadians, Arthur. Yikes. Classic Affleck. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys know Canadians are Americans, by the way, because that's they're North Americans. Yeah, exactly. Right. 
Mexicans so are, are Mexicans. Americans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Guatemalans, Americans. People from Tierra del Fuego, Americans. Arthur's number one pick. Christopher Columbus. Continue. Sorry. Yes. Oh, the Big Heat. Oh, what's the, what's the Kathleen Turner uh, movie? That's Body Heat. Body uh-huh. Heat. Okay. I was reading this and I was confused. Okay, this is the Big Heat. Um, Glenn Ford is putting his daughter to bed when his wife comes into the room to get the car keys in order to make a quick shopping trip. Unfortunately, oh, ouch! Some mobsters put a bomb in their car, meaning Ford's wife is killed when she tries to start the vehicle. All this, jeez, all this happens while Ford is still telling his daughter a bedtime story. That sounds awkward. I hope he powers through it. Uh, And then Arthur says, sorry to hit you with a grandpa movie. I couldn't think of anything else. Do you guys know the big heat? What's the one where uh, James Cagney is on top of the world, Ma? Is that white heat? Yeah. All right. I know chained heat. What's that one? I don't know. I know City Heat. Oh, remember? Yeah. It's Clinton Burt, brah. That's right. And The Heat's ladies uh, as Clinton Burt. And those are the listener submissions. What runners-up, if any, do you guys have? I think we covered most of them. Uh, Is there a moment in 28 Weeks Later where she puts the kids to bed or where Rose Byrne does? That is a good question, but I don't think so. I know that... The conversation he has when they first get their apartment, like, seems like it could have been set during him putting them to bed, where he's describing what happened to their mother. But that's definitely not a bedtime thing. That's a good question, Dingus. I don't think so. I don't think anybody has time to sleep in that movie. Well, there's this moment, like, when they're in the subway tunnels, where I thought Rose Byrne, like, gets them to settle down. Uh, And then the uh, super zombie dad comes racing down the tunnel. I don't think there's any stopping. Like the subway tunnel is them just trying to get through it. I don't think they okay. ever. You might right. be there. You might be right though. There might be another scene where they do actually sleep. Uh, I'm trying to think. Do they ever get enough of a pause for that though? Yeah, I'm, probably not. Yeah. Uh, does Brendan Gleeson ever get to tuck Hannah in in 28 Days Later? I was wondering that maybe in the in the taxi cab at some point, but I'm not sure. Because um, I know – I think he has a conversation with Naomi Watts and Killian Murphy uh, after Hannah's gone to sleep in their apartment, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But I don't know if we see him put her to bed. Right. I, I thought Dingus was going to pick Princess Bride. I, I so That's the thing. Is, is So is Peter Falk putting that kid to bed or just reading to him? He's keeping him awake, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's a framing device more than like a but if you like princess bride you know pick the whole thing right yeah no one said you couldn't pick a whole whole, with the whole if the whole movie is about putting someone to bed you could pick it sure does empire strikes back count when princess leah turns off c-3po and han solo goes thank you jesus (laughs) (laughs) i will accept that one yes because that's when when droids are turned off they go to sleep yeah kelly wand it's come time for you to tell us what the next 3x3 three three will be and how the listeners can participate. Oh, so next month is 3x3, three, three, three best bullies in movies. <sighs> so, yeah. mm. Done this before? You like it? Okay, I good. do. Wait, have we done this before, Dingus? Dingus is the uh, official archivist here. I, I feel like we have. 
I just updated the list this afternoon, so let me just look. Real I don't quick. remember any. I bullies. think I remember it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly there's there's one I'm thinking of now, at least, and there's because they're terrible bullies. We were talking about some of yeah. them before. Yeah, yeah. Stephen the King bullies are the worst. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that's what I actually think got me thinking about it. Right. Yeah. What are some non-terrible bullies? Because even just the Stephen King bull, if we kept the Stephen King bullies, you could still pick like. It'd be at least three groups of bullies. They're all the same, though. Every single one is exactly the same. Well, the Stand By Me bully is just one bully, and then the It bullies, they're all bad. But they're all the same. as It's a cluster of the Stand By Me bullies. Mm-hmm. So it's weird, and they're all from different main towns, so it seems to be a Maine infestation. Maine must suck. I know. Uh, we, we probably Salem's Lot bully, too. We should save it, because there might be people who have those as their picks. We don't want to... We don't want to uh, influence anybody's choice here. So. Yeah, those it bullies are great, guys. Yeah, not, <laughs> so if you, uh... I'm not seeing it on the list, so we, we must not have done it. So if you can think of some bullies, uh, be thinking about over the next month your your favorites, and you will eventually send those into 3x3 at quarter3.com by October 28th, midnight Pacific. We'll be reminding you throughout the month of that. Uh, we're going to go see Ad Astra. And we're going to do a podcast on it next week. You might have seen it. What did you think? Send your thoughts to 3x3 at quarter3.com by October 7th, midnight Pacific. And we will include your comments as we talk about the movie and see it. Uh, join us for that. I am Tom Chick. I have been here with Christian Rominski. It's Christian Morosky. And Kelly Wand. If you want your child to go to sleep, you read them the greatest story ever told, Conan of Aquilonia by Lynn Carter. In which I have a mustache and I ride in a boat and I fight the ocean temperatures with my son Khan, the Bon Barbarian. One, two, three, not only you and me, got 180 degrees and I'm caught in between counting. One, two, three, Peter Pan, Mary Free, getting down with three feet, everybody loves Oakland. I guess I woke up this morning with melted cheese in my crack and pasties crazy glued to my nipples. I may need to borrow your sandblaster. I prefer that we be more capable and prepared than lucky. Observation, reflection, faith, and determination. In this way, we may navigate the path as it unfolds before us. All right, and we have, what, eight more recharge cycles to go before we get to Aurigai 6? Is that a question, sir? Yes, Walter, that's a question. That is correct. Dagus, just like those poor natives on Skull Island that hadn't seen any of my films, my sandblaster's a black and decker. I'm not going to leave you, Kelly. I mean that. Oh.